the subject for the evening talk is the formative experience. <coughs> Sometimes we have heard or have read that there are particular periods of our life which are somehow more uh, formative than others. And so sometimes we have heard that the period of uh, birth to whatever year is a very formative period or period from two to five or five to eight or whatever. And these various uh, views through the various psychological analyses which have taken place tend to perhaps leave us with some residue of impression that the formative years have been established at some point or points in the past and have fixed, if not determined, the course of events in our life to where we are at the present. And there might be some uh, uh, usefulness in this, in this particular view, though I can't imagine what it is, and and in viewing one in which giving weight to the past and a, a particular aspect of the past somehow helps us to uh, explain where we are or who we are in, in the present. And I think perhaps sometimes with the view, when we reinforce it in countless numbers of ways, I think a rather unfortunate distinction begins to take place. And the distinction is that through memory and through the interpretation of memory and such views and similar views, that I think there's a, a danger that it doesn't actually serve us in the processes of liberation, but actually can inhibit and limit it. Because what can happen is that we give greater weight and therefore greater authority to the past than to the living present. And once we do that and we subscribe to that through memory, through image, through interpretation and through a belief structure which accompanies it, then the significance of the uh, and potential for healing of the present can get diminished and we keep thinking exclusively in past terms. And certainly there's tremendous uh, resource and value in looking at the relationship of past to present. And in a number of cases a, uh, a need for that and uh, a necessity, if not an urgent necessity, to explore that interdynamic of past and present, present and past. But as I say, if out of that comes an ideology and a rigidity of view and a fixation of ideas from the standpoint of liberation, the, the past is given too much credit, too much significance, and we're in danger of 
too much knowledge and analysis of it. So I think it's important in looking at formative experience to consider the actuality of the present and perhaps in our consideration of the actuality of the present we might say that life is a formative experience that there is no period which is more or less formative than any other and each day we pass through our life that's, there are these variety of formations of feelings and thoughts and memory and image and ideas and perceptions and consciousness going on and it's all formative it keeps showing itself and revealing itself and I think there is far more hope in our highlighting and exploring the living present where life clearly is and, of course, being respectful in, and acknowledging the shape, the influence of the past, but not to the degree that somehow we feel to be a servant of the past, a victim of the past, uh, a prisoner of the old, of yesterday and yesteryear. Sometimes what we notice with ourselves, and we notice here as elsewhere, there is the, the impact upon us of um, events or circumstances. And what we might describe that happens to us in the impact that we touch upon what I sometimes refer to as uh, reaction, centers of reaction. And these centers of reaction, as it were, spring into consciousness, sometimes gradually or alarmingly uh, quickly, and we feel in the moment, in that reactivity, to be quite overwhelmed by the circumstances. And there's gross and subtle forms of the reactivity. And we might say that in a state of reaction, that some of the ones which are familiar to us is fear. Another would be uh, anger. Another would be uh, compulsive um, desires or need or pursuits in some form or other. So we find ourselves in our uh, daily life, in our formative uh, experiences, which influencing us day by day, and then there's a moment of impact. Something strikes strongly, unexpectedly, and, and it's as though full license is given to the center of reaction, and we're swamped, drowning in this uh, experience. So, and many uh, examples and illustrations of this, and sometimes they uh, take the liberty of um, referring to one or two of those which are mentioned in one-to-ones or small group meetings because they're common uh, enough. And one being sometimes in a situation like here, one goes out, as one person was recalling today, one goes out for a, a walk, uh, one of the uh, women participating here, 
And as it is in a uh, um, violent and uh, aggressive society that we live in, there is the influence of memory of the past. Sometimes through personal experience, sometimes through what one has heard, what one sees in the, in the media, and there is a, a real sense of caution, caution about outside in the nature, caution about taking a walk, caution about walking uh, around the loop, a certain um, apprehensiveness which is there. And many of you here will uh, be familiar with this, either here or elsewhere. And when one is taking a walk with the wish and the commitment to be as clear, as mindful as uh, possible, and there's a certain, uh, hopefully, uh, realistic assessment and looking at a situation of this world with its aggression and its violence which takes place in it. And sometimes one small incident, one sound, one somewhat innocuous event in the, in the nature, bringing some surprise to those moments of mindfulness, triggers lightningly quickly fear. Was that somebody? Was that a man? What, what was that? And it sparks and the wave of that center of reaction, understandably in the world that we live in, swamp, uh, sweeps through the body, over, overwhelming consciousness, the clarity, and one, there is fear, if not terror, one feels petrified in those moments or moments. And naturally and understandably, quite often, the first wish, when one is experiencing that, even though that one has recognized that was just a sound, an acorn falling, a, a branch, or whatever, the first wish is to want to rush back to the place of safety. So we experience the impact. There's a sense of reaction called fear. We naturally want to get away from that as quickly as possible and to get to the safe place. And sometimes we find ourselves in situations like this where are we going to be able, not easy, are we going to be able to dig a bit deeper? Are we going to be able to say, well, that was just a sound that was not a threatening situation. I don't have to flee back and find the courage in ourselves to move forward with the situation, to keep walking, to keep one's presence through the situation. I was recalling to the person just a couple of years ago when I was here that uh, a friend of mine who had been in uh, the, the East in India for uh, a year or two and she told me of an incident. She returned home, and this was the case to the, to the West Coast. She was in Berkeley one night and she visit, was visiting a friend and on the, at about midnight she decided to return to her uh, apartment where she was staying. And on the opposite side of the road, and I thought it was uh, a thoughtful uh, gesture, the, a motorist, male, uh, stopped the car. He wound down the 
window and he shouted across to her something along the lines, I don't think it is wise for you to be walking these streets at midnight and my advice to you is to find a taxi and go home by taxi. And he said, thank you, know, thank you and take care and on his way he went. And I think sometimes with us there's the situation, many of these situations arise where we're engaged in an activity it's vital that we are realistic about the world that we live in and that we're not naive about this world that we live in. But easily what happens is that the fear seems to be justified. Through being realistic, we give justification to the fear. Naturally I'm going to be frightened, naturally I'm afraid, naturally I'm very concerned, worried if I am, something might happen, whatever. And so through sometimes being realistic, it gives extra license to fear. And what we're saying here, the teachings are the teachings of liberation, which are the teachings of liberation from fear, yet being realistic. Yet being realistic. And sometimes, and some of us, different occasions in our life. What we've sensed that we've had to do in being realistic and being aware and conscious human beings is to actually go to the spot where the fear was. Go to that place where it was occurring and walk, in this case, walk right through it again and see these flows of sensations which are going on and show and reveal to ourselves that we are not going to live a prisoner of these sensations. It's not going to be the determinant for clear, realistic action. And I think we can liberate ourselves from fear. I don't think fear serves any human usefulness whatsoever. I think it inhibits clarity. And awareness reveals the clarity of situations, the realism of situations, and fear inhibits that opportunity of freedom to act, to be. So sometimes it emerges, the center of reaction, we say, may emerge in a distinct expression, out of circumstances, in a circumstance. One might draw the conclusion, oh, I have so much fear inside of me. That means I have so much to work out. That means there has to be these formative experiences in the past. That means I have a lot to work out from the past or a lot to go into. The strength, I would say, is a Dharma teacher, a spiritual teacher. The strength of the sensation of fear and the frequency of its arising is not 
I feel, is not to be used as a referent to say, therefore I have a lot to go into in, the, in my past. It may be necessary, and I would never say it isn't never necessary, but just the power of the sensation isn't the measurement. And the wonderful thing about spiritual life and contemplative awareness is we can be free from all of this, regardless of the potency of it, without ever, ever having to give a single thought, a single reflection to the past circumstances. Not one single one. The truth, the suffering, the inquiry into the suffering, the liberation from suffering, all can be discovered right here and now without recourse to memory. is why the Buddha says the Four Noble Truths are all to be found here and now. The whole Dharma teaching, the spiritual teaching, its completion and liberation is all to be found here and now. In 20 volumes of text, not a single reference to formative experiences. Sometimes with our centers of uh, reaction and the way they move and give shape to our looking and our interpretation of the present comes as anger, as negativity. May be directed towards another, towards oneself, towards life, towards a situation. Sometimes starting off as a specific oneself, another. And then, rather sadly, sometimes in a way, kind of spreading itself out to, as it were, like cover the whole of consciousness. It's as though sometimes when we're feeling negative, we're feeling reactive, we're feeling moody, irritable, hostile, that it covers consciousness that whatever we look at, whatever our attention turns to, it seems like we've, we've colored everything in that same mood. That we're living in that center of consciousness, we're seeing life through it, we're believing it, we're calling life miserable, we start using uh, uh, the Buddha's teachings to justify it. Oh, life is dukkha and all of these monstrous ideas. And all, all of that tends to permeate across consciousness. And somewhere or other, sometimes in that sense of reaction, we've, we've perhaps lost sight of what was the contact that took place in the present. Where was the, the spark which, in which there was contact, feeling, and movement of that center of reaction? What triggered that? Was it a memory? Was it something that somebody said or whatever? Was it some hope and wish and demand I was making on myself? 
Was it something I just don't know what it was? But even if I can't recognize it, is it, is it fair? Is it true to life to paint all life as miserable, as suffering, as unhappy, as dukkha? I think sometimes if we're going to be focused, as we speak so much here, be mindful, be observant of the particular, then that observation requires a lot of diligence from us, a diligence which recognizes as early and as accessible as possible what is the spark of the irritation, the negativity. What is it that's going on with me that I'm asking so much of myself, so much of life, so much of other people, that when it's not being provided, I get moody, irritable, depressed, confused. And the very wonder and the beauty, mercifully and rather in a rather liberating way, if we'd only understand it, is that life just refuses to fit in with our wants. It just won't do that. <laughs> and the moment that you or I think we've got a handle on life, We've got it ordered to our specifications. It says, screw you, it's not <laughs> like that at all. And every intimation, every single moment, every single human being, every time that something is going on, which we would prefer not to be going on, is a revelation that we can't get it our own way and when on earth are we going to realize this? When are we going to realize that life is not made for you, nor me, nor anybody? And if we don't understand that, we'll suffer incessantly. And if we do understand that, we'll liberate ourselves from suffering. And if one doesn't hear anything else in the whole of one's life, one just takes that statement to heart and works with that, it's enough for existence. Life is not made to fit you, nor me, nor anybody. It's too big for our pathetic whims. Sometimes when we look at the centers of reaction, and as I mentioned, we see the fear that arises and the all that gets mobilized with that and how we are challenged in the actualities and the realisms of that to see fearlessly, to know or understand what that means. Sometimes we see too with our reactions, our 
negativities and hostilities and the judgments which we take place because in the vast schema of things it's sim simply not fitting into our requirements. And another area too with our centers of reaction is the mobilization, the movement of desire. And sometimes I think we haven't really understood the nature and explored adequately enough and deeply enough with ourselves, despite all the encouragement in facilities like this, the character of desire. We some, somehow or other, we sometimes, we, perhaps we get too involved in being um, good meditators or like that, and we use good, being good meditators as a, as a distraction, looking at this movement that takes place, the force, the movement of desire. And we're all too happy, not happy, but um, keen to be with the force of the desire when it's going in the direction that we want it to go in. As long as the desire is fitting in with what we want and the world is kind of meeting it, then we're happy to perpetuate it. And sometimes in that movement, that movement of desire, sometimes we notice with it that we reach a kind of crossroad. And in the crossroad, there is, as I mentioned earlier before, there is what I call this mythology of choice. We've had this rammed down. It's very much in our um, culture. Or as somebody commented to me recently, the only culture we have in our society we keep in the refrigerator. <laughs> and sometimes with our desire and this movement on desire, we reach the crossroad. And the crossroad is the one of feeling there is some choice in the matter. And we're a bit mystified, I think, with choice. We've kind of, we're hypnotized by choice. And the media, and I don't want to go into the supermarkets and all of that, all propagate an idea of choice. Whether there's much choice or whether we're just um, conditioned into buying Nescafe, I'm not sure. But in that movement of desire and the choice which arises in that, that choice here, in this situation, could be quite subtle. You are sitting, and now for a period of time one is sitting, and the question arises, shall I stay still <laughs> and continue in hell, or shall I get out of this wretched posture and get a little bit of heaven? And then this becomes the choice. And in this choice, it's a kind of um, retreat from the retreat. We retreat into the idea of choice, and we start thinking, well, shall I or shan't I? Shall I or shan't I? And in that movement away from that, at least for a little while, 
it's keeping one away from the pain, away from the discomfort, and it's keeping going the idea, I could do one or I could do the other. So sometimes it's not so much choice, it's an opportunity for escape. As I say here, it's fairly subtle form of choice. But in the subtlety of that, those choices, the, the mythology which builds up, when it begins to build up and there's a bit more investment, a bit more in feeling and emotion in that choice about this or that, a bit more concern about the results, that subtlety of choice, as it builds up, becomes dilemma. Put a bit more centre of reaction into it, bit more investment, and the dilemma becomes a conflict. Carry on from the subtle to the gross, and the conflict becomes a living nightmare, and sometimes it becomes complete paralysis and breakdown and we call it choice. And it's not that it starts off necessarily explosively. It might start off quite subtly, but gradually it erodes clarity and wisdom. It, it erodes seeing into life, and shall I, shall I stay in this job or shan't I? Shall I stay in this relationship or shan't I? Shall I stay in this city or Shall I stay in this posture? Or and just gradually, gradually, <laughs> gradually, one is in a complete mess. <laughs> Not only generating the confusion and the pain in oneself, but when it involves another or others, it's being generated all around, and all of that is built up on shall I or shan't I? Can we liberate ourselves from choice? Dare we question this sacred cow of our society which is propagated morning, noon and night? And I think those rather subtle dilemmas on the meditation cushion, those subtle dilemmas when walking up and down, those subtle dilemmas when one hears as one Will tomorrow morning at 5.30, the enthusiasm of the bell ringer. Those opportunities there can give one some opportunity to see what is life without choice. What would that, what would that be to respond and in a way which is not oscillating back and forth in a centre of reaction, bound up with desire and conflicting interest. So when we speak of choiceless awareness, when we speak of liberation, we're speaking of liberation from the seeds of painful duality. So sometimes in our sitting, 
or in queuing for the food and taking food or walking or whatever the, the, the form which gives us some opportunity for some uh, discovery, liberating discovery. Perhaps the choice, the thought, the brain that's producing, as it were, one brain cell saying one thing and another brain cell saying the other and all the uh, build-up of the dilemma, perhaps we don't need to concern ourselves with that at all. Perhaps if we can keep faith with the very raw experiencing which is taking place, the raw experiencing of that pain in the knee or in the back, that discomfort, or whatever, and just stay there. Perhaps we don't have to concern ourselves with joy. But in the staying there, there's the experience, there's the intimacy and directness of knowing the experience, and the action will come right out of it that there was never a choice in the matter in the first place because experiencing, knowing and acting is, as it were, a single line, unwavering. And I think in there are a number of situations here, whether it's walking the loop or being in the meditation room or waking up in the morning or whatever the form that we can get a sense experientially and Im immediately of the directness of action, the directness of being in, in the world, the immediacy of it. And then such the grips, the obsessing, of the centers of reaction become rather, rather empty. Sometimes, finally, with the meditations, it's not, sometimes one feels maybe miraculously, it's not just a, um, a jumping in and out of different centers of reaction making up one's life, but sometimes there is a, a quietitude. There's no wish inside, there's no desire to be anywhere else in this world or to be doing anything else. One experiences a, a sense, a feeling of just being present on the earth, just living the life, letting the life reveal itself through the unfoldment of what's happening with oneself and with around. And there's no wish for anything more, in a way, or a wish for anything less. It's just life is just showing itself. And it's not that, in a way, that this is my life, and this is what I'm doing with my life, and this is the way I'm living my life. But a kind of different sense. It's like life is living itself. And I and my and me don't really have too much to do with it. It's just revealing itself, participating with itself. And sometimes in that there's a certain quietitude, a certain calmness, peacefulness. And we're not too concerned with the methodologies and the techniques. And we're not concerned about doing it just right and having it just so. It seems like the atmosphere allows for a, a certain spaciousness, 
in the quietude of the situation. And there's a certain kind of refinement and not too much identity. Not too much identity. And the fact that we don't seem to have much identity to ourselves or to others doesn't really seem to matter too much. Because it only matters when the desire says it matters, when the centre of reaction is born. But we're not experiencing that centre of reaction, so, so our identity is not so not an issue for us. And I think those quiet moments rather sublime and rather refined, in which we're nobody special in this world, are very precious moments of life. And to feel at home with that, feel at home with being nobody, and being nobody special, and not having any special mission, and just feeling our, our nothingness, our everydayness. is very, very precious. And it is something which is rather wonderful and vast in its global consequences. So I think in our time here, we can explore the challenge of our, the centers of reaction. I think in our time here, we don't need recourse to memory for resolution and understanding. And I think in our time here, when we're experiencing that which is not fear, not anger, not desire, and there's that quietitude there, but that sublimeness too, and the recognition in that sublimeness of being nobody, not being anybody important, not being anybody special, just being one of five, six billion, and just letting the life unfold itself. And I think in that, that sublimeness, we individually and collectively pay immense respect to our experience of the earth and being on the earth. And in that sublimeness there's a genuine sense of reverence and awe and wonder of just sitting and breathing and feeling and being and participating in something which our brain will never comprehend. May all beings be in touch with themselves. May all beings be in touch with life. May all beings be touched by the mystery of things.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.